Welcome to the Biota Podcast. I'm Tom Barbele, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Gerald de Jong. Gerald, it has been, I was looking at my notes, eight and a half years since we last talked in a recording. But one of the highlights, actually, I found of doing the Biota Podcast was we went for a walk, right? You came for a box lunch and we went for a walk in Los Gatos sometime. Yeah, that was uh, that was the summer of 2015. Such a wonderful opportunity to meet someone who I'd spent so many hours over many years recording audio with. Let's, let's, for listeners who last heard from you when you were working on Tetragochi, what has gone on in the past eight and a half years? How has artificial life changed in your own thinking? What are you working on currently? Uh, well, for, there were a number of years there where I was doing a, a, a project with a, several other people in, uh, the cultural heritage domain, and that was uh, that was sort of uh, all encompassing. It ended up sort of occupying all of my time. It was uh, it was only recently that I got some time to uh, to get back to that that kind of work. And uh, this time around, I just I found the most uh, incredible technologies to get the job done in uh, in WebAssembly and uh, WebGL. So uh, it was exciting to be able to sort of revisit the stuff that I did before. I had to completely rewrite it, of course. But, uh, you know, I suddenly was able to just put it on a web page, whereas before deployment or, you know, getting it out there was always difficult. So what is your language of choice now? Yeah, well, for this project, it turned out to be TypeScript end to end, including the the code that's written to create WebAssembly. Hmm. So it's like end to end to end. For folks listening. No, I was, uh, I yeah. was quite surprised. I was quite surprised that uh, the TypeScript was uh, was able to do that on uh, on all fronts. Uh, Quite nicely. For folks listening in, you have a YouTube channel. When does the project actually officially launch? And can you introduce the project? Yeah, I've been sort of sort of uh, carefully soft launching a little bit here and there uh, because uh, I haven't been able to dedicate much time to it lately. Uh, my work has been taking up too much time. But uh, no, it's a project to uh, uh, um, to bring together two heroes of mine, uh, Darwin and uh, Fuller. So, uh, you know, the more I started looking at it, it was like, what am I actually doing here? It's, it's, it's kind of a work of art in a way, but I want to bring together Darwin and Fuller. And so I'm sort of using like the structural uh, metaphor that was uh, such a favorite for Fuller and uh, creating a Darwinistic uh, environment in which uh, sort of Fulleristic structures uh, compete with each other. So when I announced that I was restarting the Biota podcast, a gentleman who I associated with Model Rail Radio came forward and said to me, when are you going to get on that Tensegrity fellow again? And I said, ah, interesting. And can you get him to actually give a solid definition for what a Tensegrity is? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, absolutely, I'd be happy to. Uh, actually, that, if if I were to be honest, that will be sort of the next direction I go when I get uh, Galapagachi working is to uh, explore Tensegrity more using this technology because, uh, okay, so Tensegrity is a really simple thing. It's a, it's a, it's a structural principle. Uh, the idea is that the, the structure gets its integrity from the tension. So that means that uh, any sort of thing that's not in tension, it's compressing instead, is localized. So, uh, you know, you get certain uh, a certain behavior and it's like uh, you get sort of the most bang for your buck structurally because tension is much easier to create sort of in, uh, you know, with uh, carbon fibers and things like that. You can really get a, a, a tension to weight ratio is really amazing. 
So it's it's just a structural principle. So you can theoretically build the large structures with it, but uh, I've always loved it just as a a way to imagine space in a way. You know, it's uh, it's a way to define space because um, the only way that you can occupy space is to grow one of these tensegrities. So you, you know, it's, if it doesn't have a reference frame, and it doesn't really need a reference frame. Anyway, maybe I'm getting a little too weird. I always like the metaphor of it's it's kind of metaphor for musculature as well, right? There's an element yeah, of musculature in that. The 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 core of Galapagachi is that the the unit you have to think of the 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 operating unit is actually just an interval. It's uh, it extends from one point to another, and uh, it uh, over time it has a desire to get longer and uh, and then get shorter and then get longer and then get shorter. So it sort of flexes like a muscle. So that's the unit. And uh, one of these uh, sort of funny looking creatures is uh, a whole constellation of those units and they don't know anything about each other and in the evolution process their decision is when do i pull and when do i push and that's all they know so there's a certain you know and that's where the um, mutation happens at that level there's a distance between where the uh, the mutation happens and where the evaluation of fitness happens you know what i mean by that does that make sense certainly however I've also followed your work for many years, so <laughs> you may be preaching to the choir. Let's talk right. a little bit about Galapagachi, because certainly when folks are taught about, I, I follow this because I meet generations worth of developers through my work. And what interested me was the transition of teaching evolutionary algorithms with the notion of Galapagos Islands like evolution. So evolutionary algorithms are now taught, I think, pretty generally with this notion of, you know, dividing evolutionary algorithms to find peaks within very small areas and then expanding it accordingly. So that's just now part of the evolutionary algorithm vernacular. What you're trying to do with Galapagotchi, from my understanding, is have a series of these isolated environments, grow tensegrity structures in these environments, and then... Are they eventually going to mate and mutate with their neighbors? I mean, what what aspect of this has that additional point of evolution? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> well, first of all, the uh, the structures that I'm using in Galapagachi are not tensegrities yet. Ah. That will be like a future version. So what's the distinction? Uh, the distinction is here you've got basically springs. So uh, every element is a spring. So it uh, periodically pushes and pulls. Whereas in tensegrity, you've got a whole different system where there's a sort of a basic tension and some and the roles are sort of predestined. Okay, let's explore that for a minute. Oh, okay. That's this is a, this is pretty uh, pretty weird getting into you know spatial structure. <laughs> but if, if you're if you're into it, that's fine. Let's get into it. I'm I've sure. understood that we have a certain group of listeners that genuinely like this kind of exploration. Let's do this thing, Gerald. So one is a spring which I guess is relaxed for a period of time. I'm just trying to see the distinction between kind of musculature movement and tension right, okay. so and spring. A, a, spring so, yeah. a spring is relaxed if it's at its currently desired length. Uh, and its desired length changes over time. Hence, it's uh, behavior like mm-hmm. a muscle. And uh, it doesn't know anything about the world. It doesn't know to which body it belongs. It, it knows absolutely nothing. Hmm. And, and its behavior is directly mutated. So there's sort of no way to reach the, the, the world where fitness happens. And that is how fast does the creature run? Like what, what does a, what does an individual muscle know about how fast the creature is running? So spring to tensegrity is a tensegrity is under tension. 
And, yeah, and, and yeah. the role of pushing or pulling is sort of strictly defined. If you want to get into it, it's uh, essentially this. The, the things that push do not touch each other. That's the beginning and the end of the story right there. Mm. So the awareness was something that you made a point about with regards to the spring. The tensegrity also, or does it have force awareness of the tensegrities it's connected to? Is that the point that you're making with the tensegrity? Wait a second. Let's not get things confused here. You were, you were asking about tensegrity, which is a kind of structure I'm not using yet. I understand. But with the spring, you said that there's no awareness that the spring has. Yeah, the spring doesn't doesn't know where it is or what it's doing. It's just following uh, sort of basic instructions like at, at this moment I'm pulling and at this moment mm -hmm. I'm pushing, or at least my desired length Certainly. goes up and down. There's a tensegrity and, uh, awareness in distinction. Tensegrity is something I haven't started with yet. I understand. But Does it have awareness? It That's that's a very weird question, but... Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> well, in contrast to the spring, it, it does have it does have one interesting thing. It has, uh, you know, you could actually say this is a little. If you're getting all spacey on me now, why not? <laughs> it does have a kind of holism, and this is like a, basically a provable thing because if you have a tensegrity where all the pushing elements are sort of islands, they mm. don't. They're all covered. They're all, uh, you know, fixed in their place by tension. That means the tension has to basically go from one end to the other. So it, it is inherently sort of one thing. Mm. And when you build these things, you realize that. that's the, the real thrill is actually building them. If you can build a sort of a tabletop tensegrity and stare at it for the next five years, that's, that's what's, what blows your mind. Because these things sort of, they're sort of suspended in space. Anyway, that's, this, that's unrelated to Galapagotchi. Weren't we going to talk about that? Let's talk about Galapagotchi. I'm just <laughs> okay. getting the definitions clear. Right. So, Galapagotchi. Yes. Yeah, that's that. Uh, Galapagotchi is is a is a sort of a revival of a project that I did. It was almost a decade ago, mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, slightly different, but it was with a completely different means. It was uh, you know done with Java and with OpenGL, mm. and uh, that worked. But it was very hard to show to people. Because it was very hard to get deployed in a browser, and it was just no. This was uh, this was a little too early for something, you know, to make it easy to deliver. And in the meantime, something has appeared, and, and I also got some free time. So uh, I started exploring um, uh, WebAssembly, and I discovered that I was able to do the whole physics thing, which I had done in Java. I was able to do the whole thing, and and it ran blindingly fast. So I thought, I thought, whoa, okay, so I can do the physics fast. That means okay. What's the to this? And then uh, I found out that you know you, when you when you program in WebGL with uh, WebAssembly, what you can do is you can actually hand over entire array pointers from one to the other. So in other words, JavaScript doesn't get in the way. And uh, that really, you know, that that's that was a real sort of realization for me too. You know, you can really marry these two together and get you know a, a reasonable number of frames per second. So this was all sort of new to me. It'll take some time to dig into these things. And uh, I was really happy with, with the results that were coming out. It was kind of porting code that I had, I had written before. But, of course, in a lot of ways, I was sort of rewriting it. Hmm. And uh, so I, I worked out a number of things that sort of simplified the scenario. And uh, my my idea here is to, to initiate a project uh, involving, uh, you know, and more than just me. So this is, a you know, very much a work in progress. And... Uh, 
I mean, what I've basically done is is created sort of evolvable little robots, and I've given them a kind of a scenario in which they're encouraged to learn or you know to evolve certain characteristics, and they evolve purely and very transparently uh, by virtue of nothing but uh, Darwin's natural selection in a in a you know specific scenario, which is of course as you when you look at it, you can see it's very Fulleresque. <laughs> So the property of the Galapagos, what what makes this Galapagoschi as opposed to just a series of these things evolving in any point in space? Well, um, what makes it, uh, you know, what what uh, makes it deserve the Galapa part is uh, is that it actually is a, a demonstration of, uh, you know, very uh, sort of straightforward, visible evolution by natural selection. So what happens is, you know, you can you can see the genes, you can see the the robots, and uh, you can see the way they're selected. And that's that's actually what's an interesting part of Galapagachi, which is in in a way sort of counterproductive. You know, on one hand, you'd like to evolve madly in the background, but on the other hand, uh, what's it for if people looking at it don't get a clue about something new? You know, if they don't if they don't look at it and and, and get their uh, epiphanies, you know, what's it for? So so in a way, I, I sacrificed the uh, let's evolve as quickly as possible. Let's evolve as you know you could say authentically as possible. So there are a couple of liberties taken in uh, in uh, creating these creatures, and uh, as a result, you get to really experience the evolution sort of straightforwardly as it is. You see the uh, the the mutations. Uh, competing in, against each other, you know, in the same space at the same time, and you see which ones sort of survive and fail. It's it's fascinating to watch. I think you know it's sort of it's it's not really a game, at least not yet. I'm hoping for input from some people who might be able to turn it into one. But uh, I've I, the way I see it, I've I've built a sort of a foundation, and uh, I'm I'm working with a friend actually, Elvis Furchich. It's uh, a guy I worked with at. Uh, at a company, and uh, he's um, he's he's an audio uh, and a web audio sort of uh, budding expert. So uh, he might be uh, participating in this, and it would be really exciting to have Galapagachi actually make sound as well. So, and uh, so you know, I'm looking I'm looking for collaborators, really people who have uh, who have expertise that uh, that I don't have. So I'm looking for like front end people, especially and. Uh, yeah, whatever. Whoever's interested in uh, people who want to tweak the evolution might be uh, might be interested as well. So you have a series of these entities that are visually displayed in front of you, all at the same time, all evolving in front of you. You see, yeah, mutations, mutations of each other. Mm-hmm. Each okay. one of them so has each has time cycle, each each yep. large evolutionary time cycle. Let's say each lifetime for these things. Right. You see a bunch of similar things with certain mutations all moving in front of you, and then selectively one or a few of them win out, and then they are then the ones that are selected and then mutated upon to continue on. Yes, kind of. I mean, uh, that, this is uh, what you're highlighting here, uh, uh, maybe accidentally, is the, the illusion of the phrase survival of the fittest, because that's not the way it really works. It's the opposite. It's It's the double opposite, perhaps. What would you say? Demise of the weakest. Hmm. That's what it should have said. Survival of the fittest is, it can be, you know, you're thinking then, okay, the, uh, 
the world leader in the, in the one kilometer racing is the one who produces the next generation. Well, that's not necessarily the way it works. The way it works is the all you have to do is if the average is creeping up, then you're uh, you're on your way. So the way it works in Galapagos is there's a, a sort of a reasonably visible number uh, somewhere in the 30s, perhaps uh, might might be lower, maybe higher. I'm not sure exactly. But uh, these are the sort of the uh, the mutants the mutants of each other that you see uh, competing with each other. And each one of them has a sort of a fixed destiny. It knows exactly how to do everything by virtue of its uh, genes, including uh, learning how to turn left and turn right. So these are these are fun things for a little bit later on when, I mean, as soon as I have a little more time for this, I'm going to make it so that these things are sort of compelled to learn how to turn left and how to turn right. And eventually you get sort of able robots. And, uh, yeah, there, I'm sure there's a number of ways that this can be turned into kind of a fun game. But it's an, in a way, it's kind of meditative. You know, it's sort of like a sit back and relax and watch game more than more than a, uh, you know, heavily participatory. I mean, that makes sense, too. It's evolution. You know, you got to watch it happen. So each evolutionary time cycle, a group is subtracted and forgotten. Shall we say. Forgotten. Yes. Lost in time. And forgotten. <laughs> and the collective remaining contribute to the next genetic. Yeah, they are. Uh, they are among them uh, are the the parents of the next generation. So they're just randomly chosen. Ah, interesting. So it's randomly chosen from that, which means that as people... randomly chosen. So so so, so uh, several uh, several competitors meet their demise, mm-hmm. and and as a result, there's some there's some empty slots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And these are filled randomly by choosing among the survivors. You don't necessarily want to choose the best because the bestness might be an illusion at this moment. Mm. So this is this is there's a lot of subtleties in here which are, are totally fun to play with when to, when you get a little deeper. And I'm I'm hoping to sort of build a foundation and get a few people interested and in sort of uh, build a a greenhouse of uh, of thinking around this stuff. Just just playing around with. Uh, Sort of pure uh, Darwinistic selection, at least from in the beginning, because it can be. Uh, I mean, it produces results that are sort of uh, lifelike. Interesting. So the aim of this is to put it online. There's no central server that exchanges the genetic information, or will there be a central server that will exchange the genetic information? At the moment, there is. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of collaborators, are you putting it up on GitHub or something like that? I mean, how would people get involved with the the source code? Uh, it's up on GitHub right now. It's an open source project, and okay. uh, there's a there's a Gitter and uh, there's a, a Twitter handle Galapagachi and a YouTube channel as well. A uh, YouTube channel, yeah, and uh, and Galapagachi at gmail dot com. So I, I've set up a number <laughs> of things. I'm sort of in in preparation for you know a pre- in preparation for uh, for sort of uh, ramping up a bit. So this is really in in early phases. I need to sort of uh, nail a few more things, and then uh, like it kind of has to be a lot more self-explanatory. You can go right now to uh, uh, Galapagachi Run, and if you've got a Twitter handle, you can uh, claim yourself a spot on the on the on the island and uh, do a little oh. terraform. Land grab. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. The uh, homesteading. Homesteading. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so that's possible. Although I might, uh, I might just toss the island that's there right now. So this is like an early phase. I was thinking, by the way, oh, this is, uh, 
this is like a, an exclusive that nobody knows yet. But like in the future of Galapagachi, okay, are you ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the idea is that uh, just between you and me, okay, mm-hmm. we're I'm going to create 30 islands. And the reason I want to create 30 islands is because then they can be put together into one sphere, like an icosahedron. So then uh, as soon as these 30 islands have grown a bit, then I want to make a sphere of them, make them into a planet. Mm. That's just a future. Very good. (laughs) So so here's a trick I learned from this very podcast. We had a gentleman on called Anton Mikhailov, and I'm sure we'll have him back on. He said, put together a Discord channel. Now I thought, what, what's the deal with this Discord thing? So I put together a Biota, you, you joined the Biota Discord channel. I put together a Noblape one, also have one with Bottle Rail Radio. After about a week, I got a university student on there who's interested in Noblape. But then he brought in his cousin, and now, you know, I post stuff associated with Noblape. Discord is interesting. And I know actually, uh, I was talking with uh, Professor David Ackley, Anton did exactly the same thing for his stuff, and he's now got a group of university students that all hang out on this Discord thing. So, yeah, Discord is an interesting... I was sceptical initially, because, you know, it looks like IRC for all intents and purposes. <laughs> but it is an interesting way of actually getting people kind of stuck in a discussion in some strange way. So I don't know if you'd start a Galapagotchi Discord channel based on my recommendation, but it is an interesting way of... It's kind of like flypaper. You kind of get people stuck... <laughs> In a very strange way. Yeah, no, I'm hoping to uh, just sort of uh, uh, swing it around enough times to uh, to create a, a bit, a little bit of momentum, hmm. and then and then uh, and then sort of look for ways for the for the project to find a life of its own. So, if we can get a little bit more metaphysical, Joel, it's been an oh, interesting eight plus years. We, it's interesting. We kind of talked about the artificial life winter. And then I think many of us actually entered the artificial life winter in a variety of different ways. I always think of the podcast like the band broke up, basically. You went to do your work. Uh, obviously, Bruce went and did his thing. Uh, Jeffrey was doing other things. Larry Yeager, you know, did other things. So we all kind of went in our different directions. What do you think about associated with this thing called artificial life now? What, do, what does it drum up in your mind? Do you think there's still an artificial life community? Are you still somewhat opposed to the term what what are your thoughts on this thing well that's it's a hard one i don't i don't really know and i i really never uh i i I find it difficult to call the stuff that i make artificial life and i'm not sure what can be called artificial life but uh for me the the exciting thing is to make things lifelike and to have the processes by which they become lifelike the same processes that brought about biology so for me it's not uh, there uh, there uh, we're talking about simulations of some kind uh, and and one project simulates this and the other project simulates that and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things and, and each project sort of can never encompass the reality of of the non artificial life because there's just a bit too complexity there's there's a bit too much complexity still you know the the actual life is is uh, there's a lot of fractals out there so you know what we're building is sort of simulations and um, as far as i'm concerned it's interesting to see a computer do something other than it normally does so if if a computer is sort of uh, zooming madly to solve a, a very strange problem that's 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 always nice so certainly when we talked i don't know what 13 years ago now there was a very strong political direction 
to a lot of the stuff that was going on. The nature of science being under assault, the nature of you know evolution no longer being taught in certain American schools, these kind of things. Obviously, the rise of you know certain intellectuals in this space. Things have changed so dramatically now. Maybe some would argue in no way for the better, but it seems almost surreal to think back to those golden times. Where do you see this thing philosophically in terms of what we do in a broader discussion of you know where things are currently? It's it's always a sort of a question of uh, are you able to sort of broaden someone's mind when they when they experience what what you created if if it's sort of if working with it sort of makes them think new things or or have a have an epiphany or two and uh, you know that that kind of experience if it sort of opens your eyes to something then it's something and that's that's. Uh, yeah, that's what you, that's that's what it should do, I suppose. It's it's me. It's sort of like a really didactic thing. It's like and I and and even like self didactic. I just want to see. I want it to teach me how evolution works, and uh, it has taught me. And now I just want to make that sort of as visible as possible to anybody. Do you think that hobbies like gardening, you know, various kind of like animal related hobbies? I mean, do you think there are ways to see evolution working in real time? other than doing these kind of simulations? What, what is unique about these simulations of that space? Or do you just now equate them to a variety of different things where you can see evolution in some very meaningful sense? I mean, it, it all depends on your point of view. I mean, uh, I get absolutely mesmerized by ferns because to me that's like, uh, wow, somebody worked out this nanotechnology before I got here. And uh, <laughs> this, this, this really... This really, uh, you know, this is a, a very accomplished craftsman who did this. Or at least something, something crafted this. And, and it's, and it's very fractal, you know, and it's like, uh, it's, there's a whole bunch of self-repeating stuff. And I just know that the reason that's there is for economy, you know, because just in the evolutionary process, you don't want to waste anything. So, uh, or at least some things you waste, but, you know, the key things you don't. So you know the shape of a fern. I could just sit there and and watch it and 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 imagine the 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 building processes somehow working out that fractal in in space. That's just amazing. So you know it depends on your point of view. And you can see if you were uh, you know gardening, you could probably even have a more authentic uh, experience of evolution, uh, but maybe not at the sort of simulated speeds that you want, or you know artificial life in general. I suppose. You're you're dealing with real life when you're gardening. <laughs> I found with particular plants, I mean, chili peppers, tomatoes, these kind of plants, over generations, I see changes which I'm obviously selecting for. I'm the selection here in some very real sense. But it is it's fascinating. aesthetic selection. Yeah, to a certain extent. Or spicy selection. Or, you know, particular <laughs> kinds of rotund flavor without being you know overly juicy well, i like, mean uh, yes it's like uh, it's like the fact that we designed our dogs mm, very much so but what's interesting in designing the dogs is the amount of wasted i mean you need a you need a, a spring amount of dna in there to actually get to the level of dog design that we've gotten the notion that nothing is wasted i i don't see that i think actually it's the fa- the fascinating thing is the waste that is there associated with dogs humans these kind of things where yeah, there is, there, I mean, waste is probably the wrong term, but 
Well, yeah, I yeah. mean, put it this way, the, the, the fern has to grow in the most efficient way possible. And it, ha it has to use, uh, you know, photosynthesis and, and uh, most the most efficiently as possible. It's not so much, uh, you know, waste in, in terms of, of uh, DNA information that might be wasted or something like that. But, you know, it's the economy of the actual process. If there's a if there's a competing plant that um, that does this more efficiently, then then this this particular plant is not going to be around for very long. Unless it can make a beautiful smell or some kind of, you know, unless the human can be the selection criteria through this, returning to company. So. Uh, not not far from where I live, Tom, there's there's a, there's a little sort of deer park and they have deer outside. Mm -hmm. And the deer sort of, you know, they chomp on the grass all over the place and they've, they've chomped everything completely down. There's, there's quite a number of them there. And, you know, kids come to visit and stuff like that. And there are patches that are completely untouched completely <laughs> and what are they they're poison ivy mm. <laughs> so why did you why did you develop poison ivy in your evolution process well uh, we were the only ones left standing in certain circumstances that's simple as that yes yes so for folks listening in i'm not sure if you get a sense of who the biota podcast listening audience is but if you were to get people interested in what you were doing for collaborative purposes what i mean you've given the pitch with regards to the planet but what kinds of things would be fascinating to people listening in to get them involved with Galapagosia? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I just got it started. I mean, think of it this way. On the one hand, uh, all of the sort of the muscles in the whole universe are all the same length at the moment. That's just one little thing. And uh, the genetics could actually change the length. So these things could have very diverse shapes. They're, they're not that diversely shaped right now. They're sort of built of regular tetrahedrons. And I'm just taking sort of the... the I'm, I'm creating a sort of a minimum viable universe. You know, there's a lot of a lot of opportunity to sort of personalize things as well, because I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think it's a lot of sort of computational work to put skins on these things, for example. And then, you know, if you could design your own skin or if the evolution designed the skin, that that might be fun, too. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There's there's all sorts of opportunities to uh, to sort of uh, make it into a a, a competitive or and or collaborative uh, process where you actually you know you you hang out with the people who are nearby because that's the whole idea of this island the the whole the the thing is that you uh, if if you claim a a spot which which we're calling a hexalot so it's like a it's a lot but it's the shape of a hexagon uh, if you claim that then uh, then you uh, you you sort of own it it's like a it's like a crypto coin in a way mm. so. And, and each one of them has their own pattern of land and water, and that defines its uniqueness. And they overlap each other largely. So, so your neighbor overlaps you almost completely. They just have a, they have a fringe, and you have a fringe which are different. But otherwise, all of your sort of your bits overlap. So the idea is to sort of define a space without a without a sort of necessary underlying coordinate system. That's it's the sort of the intimate overlappings of these of these hexagon things it's it's a weird story but it, it it adds a little color or certain i don't know it adds a certain gestalt to the to the galapagos story because then you've got this uh now yeah, this concept of an island where they all grow up what's the distinction of land and water here yeah this distinction of land and water is the simplest distinction that i could make and that was uh, at least at this phase in the project. So, so currently, as it stands, water is sort of futile. Mm. So, if you fall in, if you fall into the water, you really won't make reasonable progress. Mm. 
Because I would have to sort of simulate a little bit of water water physics of some kind. So you'd have to be able to sort of uh, sort of conceptually grab and let go or something like that, you know. And then then you could sort of evolve your way to uh, to climbing through the water or whatever. But uh, right now the way it is is you, you're effective when you're running around on land. But if you land in the water, then you're just going to tumble around until you might as well start over. Interesting. Yeah, easy I, wanted, swimming I, wanted physics. There, I wanted there to be a sort of a water hazard. Mm. Well, I mean, that's certainly some way that people could get involved that have interest in, in water physics and particularly simple water physics to add to this kind of feedback loop. Mm. Yeah, the key is uh, simplicity because the, um, the physics in Galapagos is, is uh, written from the ground up. In in TypeScript, so it's uh, you know you can uh, you can actually follow from the from the the simplest vector calculations all the way up to the the evolution and the and the genetics. So it's it's kind of cool how it's uh, transparent. So I'm hoping to have you know sort of a, a group of people get interested in in how this can. Oh, another funny thing by the way, Tom, this is hilarious. I I wanted to sort of encode the genetics. So I'm thinking to myself, what? How should I encode the genetics? It could be anything. It could be like floating points. It could be integers. It could be characters. You can imagine. It can be anything. Hmm. So then I thought to myself, what should it be? So I turned out, <laughs> I I decided that it was going to be dice. Hmm. So because it could be anything, I made it into dice. So basically, the uh, the genes you have to think of as a sequence of dice outcomes. Mm-hmm. So like one one to six. And and I thought to myself, why why that? Well, in a, in a way, it intuitively tells you what's happening because you don't have to explain to anyone how these genes are built up. You know, it, it's implicit that these are tosses of the dice. Which I thought, hey, there's a there's a nice little meme connection. And over time, the, time. <laughs> over time, the dice are ratcheted. I guess in some. I mean, that's what mutation. Well, that's you have dice in an order. The mutation oh, yeah, is exactly. just the I dice mean, rattling exactly. a little bit and one or two or three turning over, right? Exactly. That's exactly what happens. So uh, so every mutation is, is simply pick a bunch of random dice and give them a toss. And what, and what the consequences of that is for the ability of the, you know, the, the creature's body as a whole to, to a, achieve locomotion, I mean, you haven't got a clue. So that's the point. Gerald, it has been a real pleasure to have the chance to chat with you today. As this thing continues, please come back to the Biota podcast and give updates and certainly for folks listening in you've given the email address but once again what is the email address to get in contact with you for galapagotchi related stuff yeah the the email address would be galapagotchi at gmail.com and uh, you can also uh, follow the the twitter handle galapagotchi and uh, you know beware this is all very early stage i'm not really i mean it's, this is a real soft sort of launch i can't i can't really say that this thing is going to withstand a lot of pressure yet so I'd like to get more participants. Also, the user experience is not quite there, and and the narrative is not really clear enough yet. So I'll be working on that in the in the in the coming little while. I'm not really in a big hurry because I see this as a kind of a long term thing. Certainly, certainly. Thank you, Gerald, for the chance to chat today. It's been a real pleasure. Yes. Talk later.